Uh, these last three weeks before Christmas, we're, we're, we're looking at the nativity scene and thinking about the three characters uh, you never see or almost never see. Uh, last week, we thought about God the Father. The Christian faith is a belief in the Trinity, one God, but one God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, last week we thought about the Holy Spirit, sorry, not the Father, it'll be next week's Father. Uh, this week is going to be the Son, God the Son, Jesus. And starting to, to what we've just seen a bit earlier in the service, I wonder if for some of you, you're asking the question, what on earth has just happened? Okay, every, every week we hope that at Christ Church on a Sunday morning, there are both those along who are, would call themselves Christians and believe the Christian faith and you, I guess, would have been saying amen as, as uh, Brooke got baptised. But we also hope that there are people along who, who are frankly sceptical, who are wondering what on earth this is all about. That would have been Brooke, actually, about four months ago. <laughs> um, but we hope people come along with questions. And it may be for you, you, you think, what has just happened? Whether you know Brooke or don't know Brooke, what is going on? Why would someone in the 21st century, in the age of iPhones and the internet and rovers on Mars, why would someone... Kept baptised into the name of a God we cannot see. <coughs> she switched her brain off. She's gone mad. 50-50 on the other one, yeah. That's really <laughs> Why is it that Christians, in other words, make such a big deal of Jesus? What I want to do this morning is, is dig into that first Christmas and try and think a little bit more deeply about what happened and then why it matters. We're not going to pick through all the verses we've just read, but they give us a good basis for understanding why Christians get so excited about Christmas. For understanding really what happened. Time and again you'll hear in adverts and in films over the next few weeks, the true meaning of Christmas is, and it's probably something about we've got to love one another, or be at peace with one another. Those are all good things, but they are not the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is much better news than a bit of sentimentality or a hope for a better world. So let's think, first of all, about what happened. What happened that first Christmas? If you look down at verse 14, we get our first clue. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook, he shared, he took on flesh and blood. The he there, as I said earlier, is Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, the baby born that first Christmas was the first, last and only person who ever chose to be born. He partook, he took on flesh and blood. <coughs> Children, how many of you chose to be born? None of you. We didn't choose when we'd be born, where we'd be born, to whom we'd be born. You're stuck with your mum and your dad, aren't you? You didn't choose anything. But Jesus alone chose to be born because, because he existed before he was born. Well, we don't start to exist until we're conceived in our mother's wombs. But Jesus has always existed because he is God. He existed before he existed as a man, in other words. John's Gospel begins, I speak about this character, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. A strange character called word. He's, he's with God and he is God. And already your brains are kind of whirring. And as John goes on 
A few verses later, he says, the word became flesh. And suddenly you realise who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. God the Son, who came to earth, who became one of us. Now when that happened, when God the Son became flesh, became a human being in Mary's womb, he didn't stop being God. We just want to think about this a little bit more deeply this morning. Once a year I tend to do one of these sermons, and this is it, by the way. Uh, Let's think a little bit more deeply. Um, He didn't stop being God and turn into a human being, as if it was a change. So children, you know, like tadpoles, they're tadpoles, they're happy tadpoles, 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 and then one day they turn into frogs. But once they're frogs, they're no longer tadpoles. They're either or, aren't they? Kind of the same creature, but you can't both be both at the same time. Jesus doesn't stop being God and turn into, like transform into a human being. Stop being God. He remains fully God. Partly that's because God never changes. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told God does not change. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, tells us that. James, who's the the half-brother of Jesus, tells us that. So everything that is true about God, the Bible tells us, is true of Jesus. So if I was to ask you, who's more powerful, God the Father or Jesus? The answer is both the same. Perhaps slightly more confusingly, if I said, which one is everywhere, omnipresent? God the Father or God the Son, Jesus? The answer is both. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't give up any of his powers or abilities or attributes. He didn't lose bits on the way down. It's not that he kind of parachuted out of heaven and on the way, on the journey down to earth, kind of got rid of various kind of powers and all the rest of it. No, he remains fully God. There's a saying in the early church that if you can get it lodged in your head and, and sort of think it through, it's tremendously helpful for understanding who Jesus is. And the phrase went like this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remains what he was, God. But then became what he was not. A human being. He hasn't always been a human being. He chose to come into the world. And so that's the second stage. If he starts as God, he then takes shares in flesh and blood, verse 14. In other words, he became a real human being. God the Son became as really human as you or me. In fact, if you look down a couple of verses at verse 17, we're told he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So think about anything that makes you human. It's true of Jesus too. Uh, He had a real human mind. So Jesus uh, grew up in the family. Joseph was his adopted father, who seems to have been a kind of manual worker, like a carpenter, that kind of thing. As Jesus was... Let's imagine 10-year-old Jesus. This is not a story in the Bible, which is always dangerous, but it's a sort of imagination exercise. Imagine 10-year-old Jesus for the first time walking in to Joseph's shed and seeing his dad pick up uh, a hammer and a nail. Jesus might well ask, what's that? If he's not seen one before, he, he needs to learn what a hammer and a nail is. Because he's a real human being and we aren't all born knowing instantly all about carpentry. He would have to learn how to make a table or a chair or a shed or whatever it might be. In fact, Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. 
not as God, as God, he knows all things, but because he's also at the same time mysteriously a true man, he grows like you and me. If you'd ask Jesus on his seventh birthday, who is going to win between France and England in the quarterfinal of the World Cup? He would not have known. We all knew beforehand. It's obviously going to be France, probably on penalties. But he would not know. He'd have said to you, what's football? What's the World Cup? Where's France? What's England? Because he was a real human being. And real human beings in Palestine in the early years of the first century obviously had no idea about football. A real mind, real emotions. He cries when his friends die. He feels the pain when they betray him. Uh, he knows not just joy, but sorrow. In fact, he's described elsewhere in the Bible as a man of sorrows. It's one of the incredible things about our God is that he, he is not just distant hiding on some mountain in heaven. He has come down and walked in our shoes. He has experienced indeed more grief than you or I ever will do. He's a God to whom we can go. And he has a real human body. He gets hungry. When he doesn't eat, he gets tired and needs to sleep. Children, could Jesus jump over this building, you know, a 60-foot high building? Could Jesus just jump over it like some sort of superman? Well, no, because he is a real man. He's not a superman, he's a normal man. And so already you've got something pretty incredible, haven't you? If you're asking the question, where is God? And most of us would want to say, well, or many of us rather, would want to say, well, you can't know. How could you ever know? Others would want to say, well, he's a spirit we, we kind of sense around us. Or I feel him in my heart. The Christian answer is, well, if you wanted to meet God, go to a cattle trough in Bethlehem a couple of thousand years ago, a manger, a feeding trough. And look at the baby, the screaming baby, who moments after he was born would have been covered in blood and fluid, his umbilical cord needing to be cut. And there is God. <coughs> if you see the opening sequence of, of Goldfinger, uh, Bond movie, uh, the bit where James Bond, he walks out of the sea and he peels off a kind of wetsuit and underneath he's got the tuxedo and he just walks sort of very suavely straight into the, into the bar. Um, bizarrely, that actually happened during World War II. There was a Dutch secret agent who MI6 gave a, a dry suit to. A suit that keeps you totally dry, children. And he, he, they took him off the coast, uh, and he, 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 he sort of came in um, on a little kind of canoe thing, dived underwater, came out, got to the beach where the the, the, um, uh, the German uh, officers were having a party, kind of revelry and drinking all the rest of it. Pulled off the dry suit. Underneath, he had on a, a tuxedo. He had a bottle of um, whiskey in his hand, and he pretended to stagger up the beach as if he was one of them. And managed to infiltrate at their party and get a message through to the resistance. He looked like just another drunk partygoer. He was actually an agent um, sent by the Dutch resistance. <coughs> no one realised who he was. Looked so ordinary. And yet looks can see that baby looked very ordinary, like any other baby born. And yet the incredible truth of Christmas was he was God come in the flesh. So we need two things. We need clear minds and warm hearts. Clear minds. Who are we dealing with when we think about Jesus? According to Hebrews 2, according to the whole Bible, we're dealing with one person. It's just the Son of God. It's not like there are suddenly two of them, a human Jesus and a God Jesus. One person, but now who exists in two ways at the same time, as a man 
and as God, one person in two natures, is the way the church has always spoken about it. Really human and really God. One of the songs we sang last week has these lines. Helpless he lay, the invincible. Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. It's a great line. Helpless and invincible. Helpless, he's just a baby. He needs feeding, changing, caring for. Again, at the same time, invincible, he's God. Maker of Mary, he's the creator of all things, and yet also Mary's son. Do you see, two things become true of Jesus from then onwards. Two things that are seemingly opposites, well, in fact, are opposites. Again, if you were to say, if you were one of the shepherds who arrives to see the infant Jesus, and you said, where is Jesus? There are going to be two answers. Can you work out what the two answers are? As the shepherd looks at Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the, in the, in the trough, and you say, where is Jesus? There are two answers. One answer is, he's in the trough. I can see it. The eyes of your head give you that answer. But the eyes of faith tell you that he is also God. And so at the very same time, he is also everywhere. He's in the manger and he's filling the universe as God. If you see the Narnia stories or read the Narnia stories in the very last one, um, there's a great battle and there's a stable. And anyone who loses in the battle, and that the goodies lose basically, they get driven into this stable that's meant to be terrifying. It's quite a small stable. When they get inside, they realise it's absolutely huge. The stable is far larger on the inside than it was on the outside. And one of the children, Lucy, says this. Yes, said Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. I can't explain this to you. Nobody can. But then again, why should our brains be the standard by which reality is judged? If we're only going to believe in things that we can fully understand, then we've already decided not to believe. The incredible news of Christmas is we have God in the flesh. And so we need clear heads as Christians to remember both those things. Really a man. And really God. But also warm hearts. He chose to come. He wasn't forced. He chose to come into this world. Uh, Most of us, if we're honest, if we've grown up in the West at least, and I realise in this room we've got people from all sorts of different uh, nations and backgrounds, so um, pardon me for speaking about kind of the West for a moment. But if we're honest, those of us brought up in the West have been schooled into thinking well, there is no God, but no one intelligent nowadays believes in God. That's been taught to you at school. It's everything comes through the TV and social media. Everything screams at us. Of course, there's no God. You get this very little Western sort of elite thing, but it's powerful, isn't it? Uh, we've been taught instead that we should follow our hearts, do what you make makes you feel happy. The true you is found on the inside. Be yourself. Free yourself from any kind of shackles. Express yourself how you want. That is the route to happiness. That is the religion we've been taught from our earliest days, if we're honest. If we'd grown up in Mecca, we'd have been taught Islam. If we'd grown up in Delhi, we'd have been taught Hinduism. If we'd grown up in England 200 years ago, we'd have been taught Christianity. And very often, actually, kind of Western sceptical folk look at people who grew up in 
Islamic countries and say, well, the only reason you're Muslim is because you grew up in an Islamic country. But we never turn the fingers back on ourselves and ask, maybe the only reason we're atheists, maybe the only reasons we don't believe in God, maybe the reasons we believe we should just follow our hearts and be ourselves is because that's the culture we've grown up in. What our TV and movies and schools have said to us. Christmas says there is really a God you can find in the pages of history. I've got time now to talk about the historical evidence for Jesus. But it's incredible. Wouldn't it be incredible if it just were true? At the moment, about 2.5 billion people across the face of the earth believe from the, the brightest university minds to the least educated kids. And wouldn't it be incredible if there was a God who cared for us so much that he wanted to come into our world? As an American a radio presenter, now long dead, uh, who used to tell a story every Christmas about a man and the birds, a guy called Paul Harvey. And the story begins with a man and his family, and the family want to go to church at midnight. Midnight mass is often called on Christmas Eve. The snow's falling. But the man is an honest man. He's a good man, a moral man, but he knows he's not a Christian man. And so he says to his family, no, you go, but I'm going to stay. And his wife and his children are disappointed, but they trudge off across the fields through the snow to church, leaving him behind to warm himself by the fire. And as he sits there, he hears a thump. And at first he ignores it, but there's another thump, but another. And he thinks the kid's throwing snowballs. So he heads outside to tell them off. And he realises it's not kids, it's birds who've seen the warmth of the fire and are trying to fly through the window, but bouncing off against it. And so he thinks he needs to help them. He can't let them into the house, but he remembers there's the barn, the stable. So he heads over to the barn, turns the lights on and, and tries to welcome the birds inside. But, but they're not having it. He drops some seed on the ground to lead them towards the warmth of the stable. But again, they, they, they shy away from him. And suddenly he realises that they're afraid of him. Uh, to them, he, he, he reasons, he realises, I am this terrifying creature, strange, different, unable to communicate with them. If only I can think of some way of persuading them to trust me. That I'm not trying to hurt them, but, but help them. That I'm not to be feared, but I, I'm seeking their best, their good. But how? Because everything he tried tended to make them more scared rather than more comforted. They just would not follow. And so he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to a safe, warm haven. But I'd have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, said Paul Harvey, the bells of the church began to ring. Oh, come, all ye faithful. The sound reaches ears above the sounds of the wind, the snow and the gales. As the bells called the faithful to come and celebrate the God who'd become man. And the man fell to his knees in the snow and thanked God. It's a wonderful story, a quaint story perhaps, sentimental, but expresses something of why Christmas is such good news. We have a God who has become one of us. Frankly, us stooping to become a bird would be nothing compared to God stooping to become man. For us to come and choose to live in 
twigs and eat worms is no great step compared to the Son of God leaving the halls of heaven and entering poverty in Bethlehem and Nazareth. God has become one of us. So never doubt that there is a God out there who is interested in you, who wants to know you. I never doubt there is a God who is a God of love, who has not stayed far off but has drawn near in the first of his son. And why, very briefly, as we close, there's lots of answers we might give. Why did he come? Why did he become like us in every way? Our little passage gives just one. You see down there in verse 14 again. He partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did he come? Why did he choose to be born? He chose to be born so that he might die. It just gets seemingly weirder and weirder, doesn't it? Further and further away from probably our kind of classical vision of God. Not only is he the first person who ever chose to be born to come into the world, he's the first person who chose to be born in order that he might die. If he'd remained God, he could not die. God does not die. God is immortal, we're told time and again in the Bible. So he had to become man in order that he could do the thing that would be impossible for him to do as God, die in our place. Again, society has told us God is there to exploit you. You need to throw him off and be free. You'll be happier without him. Christmas tells us he loves us so much that even when we do that to him, he wants to come, even though it's going to cost him his very life. It's a tight little argument in these verses, and we can't explore all of it now, but the the sense of it is this. We are all going to die, and that death is not just natural. It's a result of the fact that we've turned away from God, who is the source of all life. If you like, like the birds, we just keep flying away from the barn. We won't go towards God, we run from him. And there is a right punishment for that, ultimately. It is wrong that we live such selfish lives, seeking our own good first, rather than the good of others, and rather living for the one who made us. Therefore, we are going to die and we fear death. It's down there in the verse, isn't it? Deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death makes you a slave. We do all sorts of things to try and pretend it's not going to happen. We put on the anti-aging creams and pretend we're still young. We go to the gym. January the 1st, New Year's resolutions. Gym memberships go through the roof, don't they? We're going to eat healthy. Private medical insurance, whatever it may be. Or perhaps we just distract ourselves. Christmas is a great time for distracting ourselves. Spend, spend, spend. Everything's happy, everything's shiny, everything's glitzy. But it's just a distraction from the darkness we know is coming. We know we're going to die. Death terrifies us. It won't sense it all to you. Dying without hope is a terrible thing. But God so loved us, he came into the world in the person of his son and died in our place. What that means is not that we won't die. Most of us presumably will die one day. But rather what it means is he died, to use the language of the passage, to make a propitiation. That means a a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He died willingly being treated like you and me. 
He came, lived that spotless, perfect life, but willingly and deliberately asked to be treated in his death on the cross as if he were a criminal, as if he were the selfish one, as if he were the one who'd ignored God all his life, as if he were the one uh, who'd slept with everybody he could get his hands on, as if he was the abuser, as if he was the thief, as if he was the hypocrite. Uh, He said, as it were, to his heavenly father, treat me like the drunk student stumbling out of the club at 1am. Treat me like the religious hypocrite, the dad who pretends to be so good at church but goes home and hits his children. (coughs) Treat me like the terrorist, the political radical. Treat me like the thief, the proud man. None of it was deserved. But he loved not the good and the perfect, but the wicked. And because God treated him like that, it means that when we trust him, we no longer need to fear death because death stops being the thing that is going to usher us into, well, frankly, an eternity of punishment and justice, but instead into an eternity of peace and rest in heaven. 1944, there's a soldier, a British soldier called Dennis Avey. And he voluntarily walked into Auschwitz. He was already a prisoner of war. And he came across a Dutch Jew who very soon would be revealed as a Jew and therefore sent to the concentration camps. Willingly, he switched places, changed clothes, changed documents. (coughs) Abe says this. He closed the door on the turmoil of the hideous construction site and shuffled out of his grimy striped uniform. He threw the thin garments to me and I pulled them off without hesitation. Then I watched as he dragged on my British army battle dress, casting looks over his shoulder at the door as he did it. He was a Dutch Jew and I knew him as Hans. With that simple exchange between the two of us, I'd been given, I had given away the protection of the Geneva Convention. I'd given my uniform, my lifeline, my best chance of surviving that dreadful place to another man. From now on, wearing his clothes, I will be treated the way he had been treated. In the middle of 1944, I entered Auschwitz of my own free will. Incredible courage, isn't it? Amazing, he lived to tell the tale. Incredible courage. That's what God has done for us. Switching places in order that we might be free. Free to enjoy eternal life. So it can clear minds and warm hearts. You see why Jesus had to become the God-man? He had to become man so that he could represent us. He couldn't do that as God. It is men and women who sinned against God. So it must be a human being who pays the penalty. If he remained only God, he couldn't have died for us. But to see the love of God, look at Christmas and see that he became one of you so that he could die. We try and flee death. He ran towards it for your sake. Strength embraced weakness, majesty embraced humility, riches embraced poverty, immortality embraced death, all you, and warm hearts. The Son of God became a man so that men and women might become children of God. That is what Christmas is all about. And it's all out of love. He gains nothing from this. Well, remember that he was God beforehand. He remained God during it and he's still God now. What has he gained? Nothing. 
He didn't need to save us. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need worshippers to cheer him up. It is all out of love. And so in that sense, the message of Christmas is love. But it's not a love of us to one another, first and foremost, but a love of heaven to earth. Love come down. Christmas is giving, but it's the giving of heaven to earth. The giving of eternal life, of forgiveness, of freedom, of a father, of hope in the face of death. He gains nothing. And we gain everything. And so it must be an incredible gift. What does that mean? It means that you're totally new to the Christian faith, then at the very least this is a God worth thinking about, exploring, talking about. For some of you perhaps this morning, even for the first time, you want to make him your God. You don't need to bring anything. He came down to rest. All you do is ask. And he says to you this morning, perhaps the first time you've heard the message of Christmas, come to me, come into the barn, don't be a bird flitting away, but come. You are welcome. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, you are welcome. And for others of us, we've been Christians for a while, but we've just begun to suspect that God is not particularly for us. We doubt his love. We doubt his care. Maybe because of our life circumstances, maybe because of the state of our own hearts, maybe our sin. We wonder if really he wants us that much. Look to the manger, the cradle that leads to the cross. You have a God who freely chose life as a man and death in order to bring you safely through the Jordan to an eternal paradise.